and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello and welcome to Pole Position, the Hoover Institution's ongoing look at the 2016 election. We're recording this on Thursday, August the 18th. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today is David Brady, political scientist and Davies Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And also sitting in is Doug Rivers, a Hoover Senior Fellow and Chief Scientist for the international polling firm YouGov, which is partnered with The Economist and also conducts a battleground poll with CBS News that is a must-read for all you election watchers. Gentlemen, the Olympics are almost over, and if they were a gold medal for bad campaigns right now, it currently would be draped around Donald Trump's neck. Since the last time the three of us talked, what has happened to Trump? Unforced errors, gaffes, bad poll numbers, and just the other day, a staff shakeup. Now, staff shakeups are not exactly breaking news in politics. Uh, if you go back to 1980, after Ronald Reagan loses Iowa to George H.W. Bush, he has a staff shakeup. And actually, good things happened to Ronald Reagan afterwards. Uh, there have been in past presidential campaign shakeups before conventions. In fact, Trump had his first staff shakeup before the convention. But to have one after a convention is a jolt. And if you look at who Trump chose to run his campaign now, these are two people with one thing in common. Neither one has ever run a presidential campaign. And here we are about 82 days and change away from the election. So this raises eyebrows. Um, there are two ways to look at this, I think. One is we could have a long discussion about is the problem here Donald Trump or the people handling Donald Trump. And I think that's probably a pretty quick conversation we could have. Uh, but what I'm more interested today, what I'd like to hear from you guys, is the idea that Donald Trump, by choosing these people, one of whom who comes from the world of Breitbart, which is Trump's mother milk for favorable media, this is the idea that Trump is making a general election strategy that what worked for him in the primary is now going to translate on a national scale come November. And here's my problem with this. Yes, the strategy worked for Trump in the first half of this year. He got 13.3 million votes, and he won the Republican nomination. But if you do the math and add up all the other votes against Donald Trump, it figures out to about 15.3 million votes against. So, Dave and Doug, this doesn't strike me as necessarily a winning long-term strategy. So the Trump people are looking at this, and they figured that somehow they can take 13 million votes and quadruple, quintuple it into a national election. My question, fellas, is where are all these people nationwide? How is he going to swell this number? Yeah, so... If you write off uh, minorities, and you write off women, and you write off college-educated uh, uh, white males, you're left with about 20% of the 2012 electorate. Of about 125 million voters or so, right? Right, yeah. Uh, so it's hard to make that arithmetic work. You can, they can turn out higher numbers than they ever have in the past. But you can't win an election uh, based on uh, that size constituency. Um, and the, the problem that Trump is up against is that what worked in the primary uh, worked uh, for a base of Republican voters is about a third of the population. Uh, what he doesn't have is a strategy how you go from winning uh, not just his voters in the Republican primaries, but also the people who voted against him in the primaries. That still doesn't get you to an uh, electoral majority in the fall. Uh, so I... 
you know, I think what he's doing here is he's doubling down on, on uh, what's worked for him before uh, and hoping that's going to work some magic for him. I don't see how it ends up uh, winning for him, though. Dave's strategy for victory or going out in a blaze Well, of I don't. You know, the, uh, the problem is that uh, he has on at least four or five occasions told his advisors after meetings that, okay, I get it. I'll stick to the script. I'll be more presidential. <clears throat> and he apparently can't do that. So I think he's, it looks to me like he's decided, all right, I'm going to go with what uh, got me the nomination in the first place. Uh, is it a winning strategy? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I agree with, with all the numbers uh, Doug just uh, put out. I think they're all accurate. Uh, if I had to do one experiment, my experiment would be, okay, Donald Trump says absolutely nothing for four days. Just nothing. So he goes into a retreat. In my view, if that happened, uh, instead of being seven points down, I think Trump would come back to be three or four points yeah, this down. Is the calculation. Because Hillary right. is not a good candidate, and the Trump campaign thus far has spent absolutely no time uh, talking about or letting the American people think about what her flaws as a candidate are. This is the calculation which I guess they refuse to acknowledge, refuse to buy in, that when you have an election with two people who are wildly unpopular, as bad as his numbers are, she's not that far behind. And if he weren't running, we'd be talking about how historically bad her numbers are. When you have a campaign with two people that week, it seems to me common sense logic dictate that the referendum, whoever the election is, a referendum on whoever is in the news, whoever is the subject of media attention and voters' consternation, that's the person who's going to suffer. And if you look at since the Democratic Convention, she hasn't done much in the way of news. They're letting Trump hang himself. Right. right. Uh, and as long as Trump is the subject, I think they think that's uh, a winning strategy for them. So they're playing very conservatively that way. Uh, I do have to say, however, that if Trump does the teleprompter strategy and he looks like a conventional candidate, he generates very little enthusiasm, and the basic electoral arithmetic, which is slightly negative for a Republican, starts to weigh in. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the advice that Karl Rove and other people have given for running a conventional campaign, to me, seem like a recipe for Trump losing by a small amount. Uh, and what he's doing will either lose by a large amount or it will surprise the hell out of us. Interesting. So Gallup this past week put out a, what I thought was a rather interesting study. They analyzed the responses of 87,000 Americans over the past year trying to figure out who are Donald Trump voters. And they came away with some conclusions that were a little surprising. Uh, one conclusion was that Trump supporters are more likely to have higher household incomes. We tend to think of Trump supporters as economically stagnated. Uh, they found that Trump supporters are slightly less likely to be unemployed. They found that Trump supporters are more likely to be self-employed. They found they're much more likely to be retired. Probably not a surprise we think of Trump supporters as being older. Uh, they found also not a surprise that they come from mostly white neighborhoods with very few immigrants. But then a couple interesting twists here. One is that rather than thinking that Trump voters would come from areas where uh, there had been plenty of manufacturing jobs and areas that have been really affected by, by trade and cheap imports and so forth, they found actually that um, Trump supporters could be found in areas that had high manufacturing in 2015. Um, they also found that they were in areas where there were high levels of imports. So some, some contradictory thoughts about Trump supporters. But Doug, you've been crunching some data on who Donald Trump's people are. And you've you found a few interesting things. 
Yeah, so the Gallup study, which I think is a very interesting study, um, does a lot of uh, useful things. Uh, I've got two problems with it uh, first. Um, one is they do a typical analysis and they find that Trump voters are um, actually above average in income, not below average. Um, the difficulty with that is, and the, the Gallup report goes into this in some detail, is uh, that the low-income uh, Democrats uh, are overwhelmingly minority. So if you look among whites, uh, you'll notice that the lower-income, lower-education whites are more likely to support Trump than the higher-income, higher-education ones. So it's just a, a matter of doing a multivariate analysis leads you to a little different conclusion than the bivariate analysis that you, you frequently see and uh, done by pundits. Uh, the second thing is what they do is they look, and this is a clever move, um, over everybody they've in interviewed over the last year and say, the people who are located in areas that uh, have actually been more affected by trade, uh, are uh, people in those areas more likely to support Trump or less likely after you control for the, their other characteristics? What they find is basically no effect. Uh, the problem here is that's not really uh, what the claim is. And uh, what we've seen is that people who think they're doing badly are much more likely to support Trump than those that think they're doing well. That Trump's support in the Republican primaries <coughs> came overwhelmingly from people who saying uh, they're worse off. Mm -hmm. And what Trump has is a variety of explanations for why you're worse off, one of which is trade, another is immigrants. Uh, it doesn't have to be that you are in an area where uh, there actually has objectively been a lot of loss of jobs due to trade or a lot of immigration. What you need to be able to do is to believe that is the cause of your problem. Uh, there are lots of reasons people do badly. Uh, automation, for example, um, has hurt people's income probably quite a bit more than, than trade, which on average raises income, or immigration. Uh, but no one runs a campaign against automation. That sounds ridiculous. Uh, but running a campaign against immigrants and against bad trade deals, that resonates uh, regardless of whether objectively those are the source of your problems. I was going through the data that you uh, forwarded that you did with <coughs> YouGov, and one thing that struck me as you look at Trump supporters and Clinton supporters, and these are two very different views of the world. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, the idea for this question actually came from uh, my colleague Stephen Shakespeare at, at YouGov. And he, um, his story was that in the UK, um, there are two types of people. He calls them drawbridge up and drawbridge down. And drawbridge up are the people who believe in the UK that they're being invaded by immigrants, by criminals, by bureaucrats from Brussels and so forth. Um, and drawbridge down are the people who believe, in his words, it's a big, beautiful world out there, um, and all we need to do is embrace this diversity and everything will be great. Uh, so I, I wrote a version of that for an American audience, um, and basically it's saying we're under threat from uh, criminals, immigrants, uh, um, foreign trade, uh, or uh, we think we should embrace the world rather than isolate ourselves from it. And it discriminates unbelievably well between um, Trump voters and Clinton voters. Uh, Trump voters by almost ten, 9 to 1 uh, believe that we're under threat and we, our priority should be to protect ourselves. And Clinton voters believe we shouldn't isolate ourselves. Right. 
Uh, there were there were a whole bunch of voters who couldn't decide between those two alternatives. No, uh, no, that wasn't the I case. Saw. No, we. How many uh, said they couldn't decide? Uh, it was about ten percent. And they were. They split between the candidates. Split a little bit for Clinton. So we need a label for these people. We need to call them the gated community voter or the, the 9 1 voter or something like that. Yeah, but it's it's basically yeah. two diametrically opposed worldviews. Right. Um, and there's very little room to compromise between these. Mm-hmm. Well, the campaigns must clearly understand this because you look at the conventions. What did you see? The Republicans gave you four days of the world on fire, and the Democrats gave you four days of we need a group hug. So, yeah, they must understand this. Well, if that, yeah, but if that was the world, then <clears throat> that the kind of the campaigns would just be about that, right? She mm-hmm. she'd be going around. If she went around and just said, "Oh, the world's a big huggy place. Let's let's all get together," that you're not going to run that kind of campaign because those questions force you yeah. into one or two alternatives. And the fact is, if you're a reasonable human being, you may be worried about immigration. You may be a little bit worried about terrorism. Doesn't mean you're worried about all immigrants coming across the border. There's th- those right. questions force people into camps, and I, nobody in the campaign is going to run it like that. I love she that, can't that, afford. Yeah. She can't right. afford to say, "Oh, there's no problem with terrorism. There's no problem with exactly. immigration." No, the the argument <clears throat> that things are great, nothing to worry about, is not a winner in terms exactly. of picking up undecided voters. Right. Um, but it is clear that the core voters for each of these campaigns are coming from completely different views of the world, and they seem to be living on different planets. Mm-hmm. That's off. That's awfully extreme for you, Doug. I, come on, they're. I mean, they're modally different. I'll buy them, but they don't. I mean, I loved how this survey dug deeper and deeper into the world of Trump voters, all the way down to the question of what food do they eat. Yeah, so we looked at a variety of things about. That's the first time I think I've seen food sampled in a in a presidential. Yeah, poll. me too. <laughs> so interestingly enough, the Trump voters uh, and the Clinton voters like different kinds of food, um, and uh, we thought that it might be the Trump voters didn't like Mexican food or Chinese food. You know, the food of the Mexican immigrants or the uh, Chinese that are putting us out of work. And it turned out that's not, not where they differed. Yeah. That the Trump voters and the Clinton voters. Both were reasonably, uh, reasonably positive on Mexican and Chinese food. But there were some foods that they disagreed with on substantially. Um, and those were Indian food. The Trump voters almost never. 70% don't eat Indian food or never have eaten it. Among the Trump voters, almost all of them never <clears throat> eat Indian food. Yeah. Whereas among Clinton voters, uh, about 40%. Uh, and if you look at the um, French food, uh, the Trump voters are not big on French food. They like freedom fries, not So that means fries. that if we just could get all those Trump voters to go to Indian restaurants, they <laughs> I mean, come on, let's get... Well, I've got one more for you, Dave. Let's get serious. <laughs> Which is, I looked at the Jill Stein voters. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, Vegans. Vegans. What a surprise. Uh, a quarter of them, it turns out, are vegetarian. <laughs> and vegetarian food is their favorite pick. I Yes, I, I, I buy that, and... I think she should run a vegan campaign, and she might get up to 3% of the vote. She is carrying the vegan vote, I believe. Okay, so are we breaking ground today and suggesting that the quickest way to a voter's heart is through their stomach, or are we still going to go back through their minds? No, I mean, I think the point, 
in spite of the sort of silliness of the point is that there are huge differences uh, between Trump and Clinton voters about about the way they see the world, and right. it stretches uh, across that how often they go out of the country. It was uh, that that was sort of interesting. If you'd been out of the country in the last year, you were much more for Clinton, but right. was, the relationship is curved, so that people who've never been out of the country they were actually more for Hillary uh, than than they were for Trump. So, but that's a white minority difference on that. But so the point is, uh, if you look at what, uh, one thing, you have to do break on any of these questions. You have to break it down by race: white voters, Latino voters, black voters, and you get. Uh, I thought the data that. I looked at that Douglas Dugan had some very subtle features on white voters and the gender gap that were in there, and that that might be worth talking about. Yeah, I think there are you know three distinct ways of running a campaign. Uh, one way is on the issues, and that's how the bulk of the press coverage about an election goes. On uh, here is Hillary's position on taxes, here is Trump's position. And there are clear differences there. A second thing is uh, demographic targeting. So here uh, is the block of voters, minorities, and they're going to go overwhelmingly Democratic. And here are uh, uh, low education whites who are threatened by trade and immigration. They're going to vote for Trump. Um, but the third thing that drives a lot of this campaign, which I don't think we fully understand at this point, are essentially cultural differences in how they look at the world and how they respond to Donald Trump in particular. Um, so if we talk to our colleagues at Stanford and so forth, their reaction to Trump, like mine, is one of horror. How could you possibly think of this guy as a president? Uh, but uh, he clearly has an appeal uh, that... Uh, uh, extends to a portion of the electorate. And I think it's a, ultimately a cultural appeal about him sticking his thumb at, at the establishment. I think there's so, that. That's quite ironic for I the think idea that, that Donald yeah. Trump, the establishment, the epitome of the establishment, sticking his thumb at it. Exactly. There's well, he, he plays the role uh, effectively. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, who would have thought the barefoot billionaire could be uh, pulling this off? I was reading a very uh, funny piece on the LA Times this morning, and it was about uh, the actress Eve Plum, who uh, was Jan Brady on The Brady Bunch. And yeah. uh, Eve Plum in 1969 made a very wise financial decision. She bought a very small beach house in Malibu, mm -hmm. spent, I think, about $60,000 buying it, and she just sold it the other day for $3.9 million. Nice profit. But then somebody broke it down and they said, well, wait a second here. If you just took $60,000 back then and just rolled it over by about 10% each year, this is what you get. And then they said, it's not unlike somebody who started out with $100 million in life from their father and is now a billionaire <laughs> running for president. So, so touche. But I think it's probably going to be interesting to go down uh, as this election proceeds, maybe afterwards, and start talking about where people are getting their information and how clued in people are to pop culture. Because one way to look at Donald Trump is he is just a manifestation of a couple of things in society now. Number one, our appetite for people who are both wealthy and tawdry at the same time, uh, and just also a culture in which we just value people by being famous more so than being necessarily good-hearted or charitable in what they do. We just want to worship people who are on TV all the time and just have access to things that we don't. Are you volunteering for the Kim Kardashian campaign in 2020? <laughs> uh, Con it's Kanye 2020, actually. <laughs> we could do a survey on whether or not people think they'll be together by 2020. Yeah. But uh, we laugh here about Kanye 2020, but my goodness, if he ran, he'd yeah. probably get a few votes. No doubt. Uh, I think we will see more celebrity campaigns. That it, uh, 
you know, the fact that Trump was able to win the Republican nomination, spending very little money, uh, and with none of the traditional apparatus of the campaign, um, gave us an interesting experiment. And, uh, you know, the traditional approach of targeting and data, uh, position papers and so forth, and throwing all that out the window. Um, I can't tell at this point whether Trump is sui generis or uh, this well, is a trend. It showed you two powerful tailwinds. Uh, that number one, when you have name recognition, and I, you know, yeah. uh, you know, point of clarity here, I worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger years ago, and I was involved with him before he ran for governor, and we did surveys on Schwarzenegger, and we found that about 95% of the people in California knew who he was, begging the question of who the 5% weren't. Um, so he started out when he ran for governor, albeit running in a very short 60-day <coughs> campaign, but nine out of 10 people knew who he was. So, so much for having to spend $20 million explaining who I am. But secondly, people already had a built-in understanding of who he was based on this just constant saturation of him in the news over the years, which is the other tailwind Trump had. Like him or not, you knew who he was. I, one thing on that is that this survey uh, that we've been talking about is uh, so the anger survey. The level so one thing is the name recognition that he had, but the other thing is there is a lot of dissatisfaction slash anger. This survey showed to me the amount of dissatisfaction in the American public, not just among uh, out-of-work, blue-collar people or the normal situation you think of Trump. The number of Americans who think the country's going the wrong way, the number of Americans who think the government, there are quite a few crooks in, uh, in the government in Washington, right. the number of Americans who think politicians will lie or say anything to get elected, those numbers are amazingly high, mm -hmm. and that's true across the board. It's not just, uh, it's not just people who uh, have thought their economy, ec economic situation is worse and it's across the board. Americans are not happy with what's going on. Where, where yeah, I it, think that plays into... Where did this come from? Well, it's, this has been a 50-year phenomenon. If you look at American politics so in the it, 1950s... You take, it back, you take it back 50 years. Uh, you know, you have a situation where 70 to 80 percent of the people <laughs> thought that you could trust uh, government, that right. people in government knew what they were doing. And, you know, a combination of Vietnam, Watergate. Uh, but it's worse now. Right. Yes. It's but, the worst. but it started dropping in the 1960s. Yeah. And it, he's right on the overall trend. But this person, right now, it's the worst it's been post 2008, 2000. I think that's the driving force behind the numbers today. Reagan helped solve the problem. I mean, so he's yeah. right. It, those numbers in the 50s, they've been going down steadily, but yeah. they vary a lot. So under Reagan, when he brought back the idea of bring back America, uh, their faith in America went up, the number of people who so thought Doug, the Doug, government did the, the right Doug, thing. Doug is telling me the virus has been there for half a century, and you're telling me that the well, virus Well, no, the virus has been growing for half growing a century. Half a century. Yeah. But the other thing that's played into it is party polarization. Right. Uh, so... Yeah, there's a high level of anger, but people are angry about different things. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, so there's anger on the left uh, that's against uh, Republicans, right. uh, and there's anger on the right that's against Obama. Right. Um, Trump has tapped into a little bit that crosses party lines, but overall, you know, he does not have a bipartisan appeal. Why can't he tap across party lines to anger? Is it because he's quickly defined in boxes in terms of Mexico and issues like that? Or 
Because the different, the, I think the reason is because you have the two world differences. People perceive the world so differently, and there's the that once you've got that sort of perception, it's hard. If people perceive the world as far left, far right, whatever it's whatever the dimension you want to make it, right. then you can't you can't. It's harder to pull across uh, to pull people from one into the other, and that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, the Democratic left that's angry is anti-trade, but it's not anti-immigration. In fact, uh, pro-immigrant is a key component of the uh, Democratic appeal and coalition. So bridging that is, is impossible. And a lot of the anger on the right is fundamentalist anger, you know, Tea Party, uh, anti-tax, anti-government. Uh, so... You know, there are a lot of people who who are angry, but right now there's not a populist, angry coalition that's right. close to a majority. But on immigration, that's a good example. The, the, the Democratic Party cannot push really, really pro-immigration policies too far because independent voters are actually closer to Republicans on the issue of immigration. Now, uh, Republicans aren't as bad as Donald Trump position right. but they are uh, there there are differences but the point is that independents are actually closer to republicans on the issue of immigration prior to trump than they are so so they can't be totally pro-immigration, everybody gets to come in, everybody has a driver's license, those sets of issues. They Democrats have to balance that a bit, too. So to the question of can there be another Trump and could a Trump get elected president, we could say, well, if he didn't have the problem right now with immigration, he might have a you know, much better shot at this, but here's yeah. the problem. If he doesn't take that position on immigration to begin with, he doesn't go to the front of the pack with Republicans. So, so Doug, yeah. as you're looking at numbers, what a Republican comes along in 2020, another person wants to demagogue, demagogue their way yeah. to this, like Trump. If they don't want to step on the rail, it's immigration. What would they pick up or run with right now? Well, if I could answer that, I <laughs> it would be at a higher pay grade than I am. Um, but I, I think the question is to what extent is the Trump problem the problem with his message or the problem with the messenger? Yeah. Um, could a you know, Schwarzenegger had some similarities to Trump, if you think back. You right. know, he said some pretty outrageous thing about his opponents for girly men and so forth. But in the end, he ran a pretty credible campaign with, um, you know, that he was a pretty knowledgeable guy about policy and had an interest in it. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, served two terms as governor, uh, being a pretty serious uh, policy-oriented uh, guy. Um, so it... it it seems to me that a, a celebrity without some of Trump's baggage that wasn't such an egomaniac and um, had a longer attention span uh, might actually be able to use the celebrity to greater advantage. Um, I think cutting the difference on policy is much harder. Uh, I disagree with Dave on this. I think one of the first things Hillary Clinton will do uh, after in January of next year is introduce immigration reform, which they'll try to pass. Whether it'll be a disaster for them, I don't know. But I do think they're going to try. Well, I, Barack I dis Obama. I, di I disagree. I don't yeah, think she's going to go there for two years. I'm with you. Barack Obama had his chance in, uh, when he was uh, in 2008, and he, he entered George Bush, pushed it. So I, I don't know. So we'll, we'll see about that. But I will say one thing. After 2008, uh, after the 2008, uh, and after 2012, sorry. We did, uh, with Doug, we did a uh, special poll where we oversampled Republicans, 3,000 people, 
and talked about how uh, and the finding was that Republican Party was not too far out of line on economic matters, <coughs> in fact, might be better positioned. Social issues, <coughs> it was an overtime issue, worked against them. And I'm uh, hoping that we will, after the 2016 election, duplicate that right. with a big sample of Republicans to be able to try and answer your question, Bill. Okay. So we are within f six weeks now, five and a half weeks until the first debate, and we are 81 days from the election. <laughs> And you look around these polls. We haven't seen the latest YouGov about a CBS. I assume that's coming out pretty soon, uh, the battleground poll. But you look at some other polls. Quinnipiac had one out the other day, and there's just nothing but bad news for him around the country. So two ways to look at this. You can say, well, there's still time to be had here. If he chips away a couple of points here and there, he makes it much closer. And once you get closer, maybe a different narrative. The other school of thought, though, is things are starting to bake. So at, what, at what point do voters really... You're looking at a campaign, you see a campaign down consistently five, six, seven points in battleground states nationwide. At what point is a pollster, Doug DeLucas, to think this election's cooked? Well, historically, the polls uh, two weeks after the conventions have been pretty good in terms of predicting the eventual winner. Uh, so that's the big story. Uh, the unbaked story, which I would like to make, um, is that. Uh, what we've had is two weeks of terrible news for Donald Trump, uh, which has led the polls to bounce around a lot uh, and uh, potentially exaggerate uh, essentially the lead that uh, Clinton has. Uh, and uh, you know, what, what's happening is we see compositional differences of the polls. And the ones that control the composition of the sample better in terms of past vote uh, seem to be showing a much closer race uh, than the one-shot polls that are showing double-digit leads. Um, so I'm not convinced that the lead's anywhere close to 10 points uh, at this stage. Um, having said that, um, there is the state-level picture. Um, it really makes no difference what the national vote split is. It's uh, what uh, is going to happen in the battleground states. And right now, the polling there looks really good for Clinton. I, I think that, the, I, I agree with Doug, the, but I do think the actual lead, so there's a limit, let's put it this way, there's a limit given her unpopularity when the, when the, ten, when the attention focuses, the media focuses back on her, her vote total go down. There's a low ceiling. Yeah, low ceiling. So my view is there's a limit on how much she can win. I think she's basically... Three to four points ahead. I think uh, she has the lead in the crucial states. Mm -hmm. I think more importantly in the crucial states, she has on the ground uh, with the data sets and the time and the people and the advertising that can go out and turn out a one and a half to two percent bump in the vote as Obama people did in 2012. Yeah. I think she has all those advantages. So I think, uh, and I don't see how Trump in this and short time Well, the Trump targeting is utterly bizarre at this point, that he's uh, going after some states where it appears that he's hopelessly behind. Uh, I mean, they've seriously said they're going to try to contest California. And he's not going to get within 20 points in California. No, he's also been to Maine, I think, twice since yeah. the uh, convention. Yeah. So to, to pick so, up maybe one yeah. electoral vote in yeah. one congressional district. Yeah. So again, the point is that he is not. I agree. He's not as far behind, really, as the polls uh, presently show him to be. But that's a result of, as Doug said, the past couple of weeks and 
and what he does to himself. I think he's down four points, but if I were them, the key point to me is they're down in uh, crucial states. The Electoral College favors Democrats anyway, given California, New York, Illinois, they're going to go the way they're going to go. They've got a 30 gap. So in Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, at this point, she doesn't have to do very, she doesn't have to do much to be elected president in the Electoral College. And I don't see the organizational level for the Trump people in the key states that will bring him across the top. Exactly. But he's not as far down as people say he is. Final question, gentlemen. Do you see 80 days of Donald Trump embracing Indian food? <laughs> I don't think the Indian vote is going to be one they target. Well, uh, if he wants to compete in California, he should. Good he food should. denounce outsourcing. I have some very good restaurants for him in Sunnyvale. I can do, we can do vegan Indian. We can do northern Indian. We can do whatever kind you want. So if he needs recommendations, please tell him to call like me. Wings. Tell him to call me. I can give him great photo opportunities. All right, Dave Brady, Doug Rivers, thanks for sitting in today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.